Coming up in this episode. So for me, the preparations should have begun years ago. And I think we, you and I have been beating the same drum. It's, drum. it's all about metabolic health. It's all about, and we've learned this over the course of coronavirus. This isn't even controversial anymore, though. When I tweeted this, you know, on, on March the 1st, I tweeted the, the best defense against coronavirus is to remain or to be in the 12% of the population who are metabolically healthy. You know, a very small percentage of the U.S. population can really be considered to be optimally insulin sensitive and metabolically healthy. And, you know, there's a little bit of irony in my comment by saying, hey, if you're the best, the best defense is to be in the 12% of the population. But it was meant to say, hey, let's wake up and realize that only 12% of the population is, is metabolically healthy. 40% are obese, 70% are overweight. We've been in quarantine for the last eight to nine weeks. This is all fixable. <laughs> There's another article that I talked about in the podcast I did today with Asim Malhotra, a cardiologist from Britain uh, that I reviewed looking at kids with metabolic syndrome. And by removing processed sugar from the diet alone, by removing fructose from processed sugar, they were able to see improvements in all markers of insulin sensitivity within nine days. Nine days. We've been in quarantine for eight weeks. Like how many people could have significantly improved insulin resistance in the last eight weeks or nine weeks if the mainstream messaging had been less fear-based and more empowering saying, hey, put down the chips. Those are increasing your risk of coronavirus severity. Those are increasing your risk. But that's never going to happen. And that's never been the messaging. And that message has been rebelled against by people on Twitter. They would, they would vilify me and criticize me and say, what are you talking about? There's no diet that can protect you against coronavirus. And I thought, Absolutely, there are, there are diets that can protect you against coronavirus. The health of an individual at a metabolic nutritional level is everything. Welcome to the HVMN Podcast. What we do with our bodies today becomes the foundation of who we are tomorrow. This is Health via Modern Nutrition. Hey everyone, this is your host, Jeffrey Wu. And I'm excited to bring on a previous guest and a very vocal and thoughtful discussion participant in this whole crazy world of COVID-19, Dr. Paul Saladino. You probably have known him as the carnivore MD. Welcome back on the program, Paul. Thanks for having me on, brother. It's good to be here. How have you been personally? I think on the social and discussion front, you've been one of the clear voices, I would say, unpacking a lot of the complex, complicated data that's coming in from the front lines. Uh, but just on a personal note, you've been holding up well? I'm doing great. Uh, I've been in the water when I can be. And I've been in the sun a lot because I'm in Southern California right now. I'm moving to Texas soon. But yeah, I've been I've been doing great. I'm, I'm doing okay. I was on the foil board, which is a, a special type of surfboard for people that aren't familiar at Dana Point a few weeks ago, and I fell off. And the foil board that I have has a propeller on it, and my hand hit the propeller. So I almost lost a finger. <laughs> but but I got I got nine stitches in the palm of my hand, and I'm fine. It's all healed up, you know, now. So it's all good. But uh, other than that, I'm I'm doing good. It's I think we're on the backside of this craziness, thankfully. But we can talk about that as well. Let's talk about it. I mean, I think that's like definitely a topic du jour. Um, and I, again, I, I think just from the top, I think you've been very sensible and I would say empathetic on just the huge cost of life. I mean, there's a lot of people that have died and are dying and will die over the next coming weeks and months. And every single loss of life is uh, is terrible. One of the analogies I think you say really well is that, okay, 
if this is a historical event, like we're analyzing the Black Plague or the Spanish flu, what does that historical conversation look like? And I think you've been on the cutting edge of starting to unpack the data and science on that front. What's the latest to date thought there? I mean, just the numbers I've seen is that, you know, it's kind of on plateau, but we're still losing close to a couple thousand Americans every single day here. So do you think it's a little bit too early to say or come on the backside? Um, but I, I mean, some, some states are reopening. So whether it's epidemiologically, in terms of a virology perspective coming through the back end, we are starting to reopen. So we're running that experiment regardless of what uh, the virus says. There's so much data out there right now to look at. And a lot of it gets complex and esoteric and you can look at numbers. But if you look across almost every single country you start to see the same pattern, uh, almost regardless of what their strategy was for dealing with it. And that means how quickly they went into lockdown, how strictly they went into lockdown. And, and if you look across, whether it's Spain or Italy or Sweden or Finland or Denmark or Germany or Singapore or Taiwan or China or Japan or the US or individual states in the United States, which act as their own little countries akin to Western Europe, we start to see the same pattern, and this pattern has been modeled uh, now and is, is a well-known pattern with respiratory viruses. And the pattern is a bell-shaped curve, essentially, uh, and it kind of has to do with a model by a gentleman named William Farr, F-A-R-R. And if you take, you can look at European countries, for instance, and I talked about this on a previous podcast on my podcast, and you can take the average three-day rolling number of new deaths for, from coronavirus, and you can plot them against each other from all these different countries that had all sorts of different strategies to deal with it. And what you start to see is pretty similar patterns when you normalize the number of deaths relative to the amount of people in the country, or you normalize the amount of deaths relative to the highest peak value for the daily number of deaths. And it, it looks like a bell-shaped curve, and, and the curves start to have about the same look to them, meaning... They're all about the same width, which means that across many countries, you're seeing about the same time frame to go up to the peak, and then it stays up at the peak for a number of weeks, and then it starts to decline. And what we're seeing now is that as we've seen across many of the countries, we're a few weeks behind places like Spain, Italy, and Europe, and we're maybe a, a week or two ahead of other places um, in the world. And But you see the same sort of bell-shaped curve. And I, I do believe that looking at the data from Spain, Italy, and Germany, and Sweden, and Finland, and the U.S., that we that we have started to go down and decline. And it's a little bit confusing because if you look at the data on Worldometer or whatever site you want to choose for new daily cases of coronavirus or COVID-19 or new daily cases or, or, or total number of deaths in a day, they go up and down because they don't really get reported as much on the weekends. And you can see this kind of sinusoidal pattern once you get to the peak. But in the U.S., it's pretty clear there was a peak and, and we're, we're either right, ready to drop off the end of that peak or we've just started to drop off into the peak. And, and you can see this in other countries. If you look at Spain, if you look at Italy, they've already dropped off. They're starting to drop off and things are, are going down. And those countries, I believe, have also started to reopen to some extent. So what's encouraging is that we don't see in any countries another peak when they start to reopen. I know China's kind of started to reopen, which has its own implications from an epidemiologic or you know, infectious disease perspective. But I think that in the U.S., we're going to start to see it, you know, really drop off here in the next couple of weeks. 
as you're suggesting, that's not necessarily, uh, the decisions to reopen are not necessarily driven right now by virology or epidemiology. A lot of them are driven by uh, political decisions or economic decisions, which should be considered as well. But I do think, at least the way that I look at the models, and I've never claimed to be a virologist or an epidemiologist or an infectious disease specialist, just a, just a human being that likes to think outside the box and happens to have an MD after his name for whatever that's worth. Um, I do think we're going to start to see things drop down. But the important point that I see across all the countries is that there's no repeak, that we're not starting to see a reappearance of new infections or a reappearance of deaths when countries start to reopen, which to me suggests the possibility that in a lot of these countries, the virus has pretty much moved through the population already. Uh, and we get to this H word, the herd immunity word. Right. Is Are a lot of these populations already seeing herd immunity? And we can talk about why that might actually be the case. And if if indeed we're seeing this FAR curve, the F-A-R-R curve, or this, this bell curve like we do with other respiratory viruses, that's driven by the fact that it kind of starts to drop off once most people have been exposed. It stays in that sort of peak, that flat part of the bell curve at the top while everyone is kind of getting exposed and then the maximum number of people are getting infected. And that's when things are really infective. And when there's thousands of new infections every day, you can imagine that depending on what you choose for the r naught the infectivity of the virus, every single one of those people that that is showing up as a new coronavirus case probably came into contact with other people and may have spread it. So when it starts to drop off, you're thinking it's probably dropping off because the virus has moved through society. The alternative hypothesis would be it's dropping off because of social distancing. Uh, and I don't think that's the case because as we see in many of the countries that are reopening, and as, as I believe we will see when we reopen the United States, we we should not see, or I do not believe we will see a reappearance of new infections, suggesting that it probably wasn't the social distancing that caused the infections to level off. Uh, and we can talk about that. There's a lot of nuance there. Yeah, no, I think that's really interesting. And I'd love to talk from the policies perspective and talking about like kind of the different experiments, as you mentioned, the Sweden experiment, which was basically very light on shutdown versus America, which I would say is would be kind of in between. It's not the strictest lockdown or shelter in place versus something like China that was very, very strict in terms of a proper quarantine, if you will. Um, and then I know that you've had a lot of discussion and I think would be very valuable to go into the biochemistry, the physiology of some of the things that we like talking about, insulin resistance, metabolic health, and why these are very valuable lessons that we should be carrying forward as a population in terms of population health. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious to dive into the policy perspective. That's a, an interesting hypothesis that you just set up, right? Like that experiment is going to run and it seems like that's going to be run basically due to economic pressure and just almost a population control perspective. I don't think people are going to be able to be locked up for another much longer, right? I think you, just, you hear the popular sentiment on that front. So your hypothesis is that as social distancing relaxes, you do not expect to see a second wave because you. the hypothesis is that there is a much more of a herd immunity already been done. And I think the sero, serological studies have shown kind of 10x more exposure than we had previously hypothesized. Can you unpack that a little bit more? It's, it's complex, but I think you're, I, I agree with you. Uh, the serologic studies, whether it's that those are the antibody studies, and we're looking at IgM or IgG to SARS-CoV-2 virus, they are certainly showing at least 10x. Um, and some of them, there's a study that was done at Stanford for the Santa Clara County that showed 50 to 85x. Now, 
The validity of that study is questioned, even though it was done by John Anitis and Jay Bhattacharya, who are well-respected researchers at Stanford. People have questioned the validity of those numbers based on the fact that you get into kind of this, the statistics weeds. What's the pretest probability? What is the actual positive predictive value? How many false positives are there? How many false negatives are there? And with such small numbers actually showing a positive, can you make a real uh, determination about how many people have actually been exposed and how widely the virus has been distributed. But, you know, looking at countries like Iceland, uh, looking at studies like the one in San, uh, Santa Clara County in California, we start to see numbers that are at least 10x and, and maybe more. But I think that some of the more telling experiments have been done on the cruise ships. There was the Diamond Princess, there was the um, I believe there was the Grand Princess. These are both Princess Cruise Line ships. And there was the USS Theodore Roosevelt. And then there were some jail studies or at least some data coming out of Cook County Jail in Chicago. And these are really interesting to me. And I'll tell you why. Um, so let's start with the USS Theodore Roosevelt. It's a, it's an aircraft carrier. It's 5,000 sailors. And I did a podcast with Kyle Kingsbury recently. And he said he was on the USS Nassau for a little while and I've never been on an aircraft carrier. I haven't done time in the military. But he said that when he was on the USS Nassau, when he was sleeping, <clears throat> he couldn't even turn over in bed because the bunk above him was so close to his bunk that they would have a bunk room and there would be maybe eight or 10 people in a single bunk room on an aircraft carrier. So what you see, that's just to give a sense of the actual sardine quality. That's a scientific term, the sardine quality of, of these aircraft carriers. That's a joke. Um, but on the USS Theodore Roosevelt, there were 600 people who turned up positive out of 5,000 sailors. So 13% of the, of the population on that ship were positive. Now, if 13% of the population is positive, you had at least 600 people presuming that the RT-PCR test is, is fairly good. Again, we're making a lot of assumptions, like what is how many false negatives and how many false positives are there for the RT-PCR, the reverse transcriptase PCR test, looking for RNA in the posterior pharynx of the throat. But if we assume that test is reasonably good, you have a ship of 5,000 people sleeping 10 people to a room, and everyone is in a very small space on an aircraft carrier, they are certainly not sterilizing surfaces. Uh, there, a lot of the air is shared between rooms. A lot of it is underground. You can imagine that it's pretty feasible. Almost everyone on the ship got exposed to coronavirus. I don't see a situation in which it didn't happen. And yet, number one, you had 5,000 sailors that potentially got exposed to coronavirus. Only 13% showed up positive with RT-PCR. They didn't do antibody testing, unfortunately. It would be very interesting to see how many of those who ended up positive for RT-PCR actually developed antibodies, which is the next layer of complexity. But only 13% showed up positive when reasonably probably all 5,000 got exposed. So that is the other layer of complexity. And then of that 13%, of those 600 out of 5,000, only about 40%, 40% were symptomatic at the time of the, at the, time of the uh, investigation. Now, how many of the 60% that were not asymptomatic, that were, that were asymptomatic, became symptomatic later is questionable. But you see these different scales of numbers. If you can have 5,000 people that get exposed and only 13% show positive, is it, is it possible that some people won't even show positive for a coronavirus, which could mean that we have even bigger numbers than we imagine right now of people actually having been touched by the coronavirus. And then 
of those, it's, you have to wonder how many people are actually developing antibodies to it. So we don't really know how big the inoculum is. And you see the same sort of scale and numbers on all of these cruise ships. The same is true on the Diamond Princess. Again, a cruise ship, 2,700 people, I think 700 showed up positive. So what about the other 2,000 people? Did they just not, they managed to avoid getting coronavirus? They were out at sea on a ship in which there was an outbreak and 700 people were walking around. That's like being in a grocery store for three weeks and every fourth person has coronavirus and nobody's walking around with masks. Yeah. Like everyone in, in the grocery store is going to, you're living in a grocery store with every fourth person has coronavirus. How can everyone in the grocery store not get exposed? I mean, they're going to touch things. There, there's air that's shared amongst all of you. I'm sure somebody's coughing and sneezing. It is coronavirus after all. So again, only 700 people show up positive. Cook County Jail was kind of the same story. 4,400 inmates, I think some were released, but the number that I saw was 4,400 inmates and only 500 tested positive for coronavirus. So what's going on there? Is it, is it just that some people aren't even going to test positive or is it that some people can get exposed and won't even test positive? The reason I'm making all these points is we're just trying to understand how big the iceberg is below the surface. We see this tip of the iceberg. If we look at Worldometer or the coronavirus trackers, we're seeing the tip of the iceberg and we're wondering, how big is the iceberg below the surface really? Is it 10X? Is it 20X? Is it 30X? Because that completely changes the perspective on how this virus is affecting us. It's not changing the fact that there are at this point, I believe over 70,000 deaths in the United States from coronavirus. And we can talk about that. And that's tragic. And I don't want your parents or my parents or anyone we know to be harmed. And I'm sure there are people listening to this who have stories of people that have been harmed. But if we're trying to scale this and understand that at an epidemiologic perspective, we're not being insensitive. We're just saying, how does this compare to things we might have experienced as a human population in the past? And how do we move forward? Yeah, I think that, that I think those are very good data points because I, I think you're exactly right. In terms of a clean data set, having an enclosed boat that you can't move off of for weeks at a time is like the, almost the perfect experiment you could design if you wanted to study this in the lab, right? So like those are pretty clean data sets and it is pretty interesting to hear the statistics there where it is probably, probably very unlikely that those like everyone did not get some exposure at some level. And then that's like the I, kind of the max infection rate, the positive rate, which is a, a useful data point to like benchmark against at the very least. Again, what comes out of that is, is the iceberg 10X? Is it 5X? Is it 20X? Is it bigger? Because again, 40% of people are, asymp are symptomatic, meaning that potentially it's 2X, right? That, that if, you know, if, if 60% of people are asymptomatic and some of those people you know, convert to symptoms, a good portion of the population is, is never going to get symptoms from coronavirus. So we'll never know because they'll never get tested. But right. what about all the people that get exposed and don't even end up being positive and whether they generate antibodies or they generate immunity, you know, they just don't, the coronavirus just doesn't even enter their cells and they're not even affected by it. We don't understand yet. Uh, there's something else going on there and we're trying to understand how many people actually got exposed. Now, one of the things I come back to, and I was thinking about this this morning on another podcast I was doing is if you look at the R0, which is this fancy medical term for the transmissibility, in the case of pertussis, which is one of the most transmissible, it's a bacterial infection, but it's, it's a microbial infection, the R0 is around 16 or 18, meaning if one person gets pertussis, they're going to spread it to 16 or 18 people. Yep. Now, the R0 for the flu every year is 1.2 to 1.4, something like that. It's pretty low. And I, I think I've got that number right. But 
the CDC estimates, if you look at the CDC, so the Centers for Disease Control in the United States will estimate that 35 million to 55 million people get exposed to the flu every year or have cases of the flu every year. 35 million people or 55 million people. That's a pretty substantial part of 300 million people in the United States. Mm -hmm. And that's for an R naught of 1.2 to 1.4. Well, most people are now suggesting that the R naught for coronavirus is significantly greater than that. So if the flu, which transmits between one to one or 1.4 a person, is infecting 55 million people a year in the US, and again, assuming there's no social distancing, that's normal life, we can talk about this. If coronavirus has a three to four or five times higher R naught, it's completely plausible that it's already moved through 200 million people in the United States, right? Uh, if you can infect five times more people as you're asymptomatic with coronavirus, the virus could have been spread much further than the flu in a given season. So again, it's just this idea, like what if the iceberg is way bigger than we think it is? And I think we're going to find that out very soon. In the next month, we're going to find that out. And other countries, I believe, are already seeing implications or indications that the iceberg was much bigger because theoretically, consider this, if the virus has not moved through the majority of the population and you reopen the country, what should happen? you should start to see a stark rise in cases because the virus will still be out there and people will now be spreading it again. If the lockdown was effective, which we can debate, and if the virus is still moving through the population and there's a large enough portion of the population that's naive. Remember that this global pandemic began with five, 10 people in Wuhan, China. And it's not clear where it came from, there's now a Newsweek article saying that maybe it was from a lab in China, who knows? Right. Right. Or it's a, it's a species transfer from a bat to a pangolin to a human. I don't think we'll ever know those answers. But regardless of where it came from, this entire global pandemic came from 5 to 20 cases in Wuhan, China. 5 to 20 cases. <laughs> if 5 to 20 cases can circulate around the world, what makes us think that stopping social distancing, would that, 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 that it's not going to move through the entire population. Are you telling me that, I mean, maybe I'm thinking about this wrong. You tell me if this doesn't make sense to you. If we think that five to 20 cases can move throughout the whole world, if enough people haven't seen the virus in their immune system, why do we think that it's just going to go away, right? We end social distancing. There's going to be way more than five to 20 cases and people are going to be back to normal life and flying on planes and moving around. The virus is going to spread. Does this make sense to you? Do you see what I'm driving at here? That if a small, if there's not some degree of immunity within the population to, to quell the spread, five people can start a global epidemic. Isn't that wild? Yeah. I mean, that's where exponentials are right. just hard to fathom for us. I mean, when we look at a ball, like we're used to seeing things in physics move linearly. There's not a lot of things in physics moves exponentially or we see in every day. So I think it's hard from an intu intuition perspective. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think a good point in terms of what was the original point for social distancing. And I think that goalpost is in flux right now where <laughs> the original discussion for social distancing was to flatten the curve. So we, we wouldn't break the ICU capacity in hospitals. And now it feels like that the, shelters in place should maybe be in place until we have a vaccine or a therapeutic. And I think that's where uh, it's unclear from policy decision makers. What is, what was the point here? So I, right. Like you could, 
I could see from a conservative perspective, meaning let's be ultra, ultra safe because we don't really know what's going on. Let's flatten the curve. Let's do social distancing to make sure there's not some crazy spike in capacity and people start dying of things that, uh, you know, of, 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 of treatable cases. But it seems that given what we've seen so far, we have not breached ICU capacity or hospital capacity. Um, so then the question is, did the shelter in place and the social distancing do its job where we did flatten the curve enough? This is, I agree with you completely. I've been wrestling with this for weeks. I've been asking on social media, can someone please explain to me the point of social distancing beyond avoiding healthcare overwhelm? Not that healthcare overwhelm is an insignificant endpoint. It certainly is. And in New York City, though I was not on the front lines in New York City, there were at least reports that perhaps it may have happened. But I don't think we overwhelmed the ICUs in New York City. And some people may claim that's a, that's a, that's a success for social distancing. That's neither here. We don't know. Possibly that did that. Possibly it was effective and efficacious in New York City. But one of the things that I've said throughout this epidemic or this pandemic was that it's very heterogeneous and not everywhere in the United States came anywhere near needing to over, you know, overwhelming the ICUs. And certainly in Sweden, where they did not do social distancing to the degree that we did, the ICUs were not even at half capacity. And then in the UK, I believe there were 12, there was an average of 12 to 15 patients per hospital with COVID. That's 12 to 15 patients in a whole hospital with with severe coronavirus. So um, in many places, the healthcare system was not even close to being overwhelmed. And you're right, it became more of a policy decision to continue social distancing, distancing rather than a medical decision. And in fact, the whole point of it, as far as I could see, and as far as anyone could explain to me, was so that you didn't overwhelm ICUs. Now, Inherent in that is an assumption that an ICU can actually help a patient. And sadly, many of the patients that went on ventilators did not come off the ventilators. I'm sure there were some cases, and I would not claim that we should not be using ventilators in patients, but even over the course of coronavirus, we've seen that other interventions may be more efficacious for these uh, patients in the ICU. And sadly, a lot of patients that go on ventilators don't get off them. Ventilation doesn't seem to have been that effective for coronavirus. Certainly supplemental oxygen uh, saved a lot of lives or allowed people to get through the worst phases of coronavirus. That was a very valuable hospital intervention. But we also have to be honest about how efficacious we were in the hospital in treating this and what kind of therapies we had. I don't think the data was very good for hydroxychloroquine. I know it was used experimentally some. I don't think that we we don't have full trials of remdesivir yet, which is an, right. uh, a nucleoside analog. Um, and so I don't really, I'm not aware of any super efficacious therapy being used in the hospitals. I never saw any real trials on IV vitamin C suggesting that it was super effective for COVID. So what we are faced with is, did we shut down the economy for a goalpost, like you're saying, that just constantly kept getting moved? And we never had a clear goal. And should we have even opened things up sooner in areas where the healthcare system was not overwhelmed, not to be crass, not to be insensitive, not to kill people, but to realize this is not money for lives. This is lives for lives. And that the economic implications of this whole thing will cost us lives. There's plenty of data. And now more and more people are waking up to this fact. There are 30 million people unemployed. There are stats that I've seen from Bloomberg and others that for every 1% unemployment in the population, 40,000 people, that's four zero thousand people will die over the next six years. Yeah. So we have 30 million people, you know, 
unemployed and we have an unemployment rate that's what is it now 15% or 13 or 14% unemployment yeah, i mean so funny yeah like 18 19% 18 19% so yep. you know take 40,000 people and times that times 20 or 18 over the next 6 years that could possibly lose their life because of the economic downturn and what you end up with is more people dying from that than coronavirus yeah by far and and so then we start to say is the cure worse than the disease and and we get into these you know we get into these really dirty mud wrestling matches like if we hadn't done social distancing millions of people would have died which i don't believe and now there's an epidemiologist from the university of washington where i did my residency after medical school saying we can't do herd immunity because we can get overshoot meaning that if more than 60% of the population gets exposed uh, we could have tons and tons of people. We could have 90% of the people get exposed to coronavirus, and that would result in, in an unthinkable or an unacceptable amount of deaths. My assertion is we don't even know that that many, you know, it's possible that 40 to 60% of people have already been exposed. And if we reopen the country, as other countries have, and we don't see a spike in coronavirus cases, you can make a case that we may already have achieved herd immunity, <laughs> uh, right? And in that case, his point is completely moot. I think that, um, again, the bigger the iceberg is under the water, the smaller the case fatality rate gets, and then we can make reasonable decisions. I'm not, again, I'm not saying that that the deaths should not be noticed and, and mourned, but um, would the dead want us to destroy everything or would they want us to go on living? I think that um, though I gratefully didn't have anyone in my family yet affected negatively by coronavirus, I know that my parents were preparing for it. They're both 70 years old and they said, hey, if we go, we go right now. And I, I told them, I, I think you'll be okay. But I know personally that my parents would not have wanted me to stop living to mourn them. You know, And I think that that's, that's the equation that we may be faced with, which is something that humans are not very good at. And it gets to these very charged political norms. And we should not forget that this is an election year. And there may be a political agenda here amongst the medical agenda. That's why that's such a fascinating topic where there's so many literally dimensions to slice it. And I think people don't talk about it at the same level, right? Like there's a medical epidemiological level, there's a policy level, there's economics level. And I think when people just argue in a room, everyone's, they're not even talking on the same language because there's people are focused on different outcomes. But I want to reflect on one point on the ventilators. That's a, I, I've seen similar data sets where mortality or, or, or outcomes after being on a ventilator is like very low. It's like sub 50, if not closer to sub 25% survival rates to recover if you're on a, if you're put into coma on a ventilator. And it feels like that's almost been like an unspoken fact where I remember six weeks ago, it was all about making ventilators, ventilators, ventilators. And it feels like the ventilator discussion topic has uh, disappeared. It's worth just kind of calling out. What do you make of that? Is that just, there was a hypothesis it kind of made sense to get that equipment in there because it, pro it probably could have helped. It doesn't seem like it's really helping and people kind of like pushes under the rug. What do you, what do you make of the ventilator story? Uh, this is what the, the whole coronavirus conversation is so charged, right? It's so politically charged. It's so emotionally charged. Um, again, I don't want to be insensitive to anyone whose family member was on a ventilator or may have died on a ventilator or may have recovered on a ventilator. But the numbers I saw were similar to what you were quoting, that of the people that went on ventilators, and for those that are listening that don't understand this, a ventilator means that you have a tube into your lungs through your throat. 
So in order to prevent you from gagging, you must be put into a medically induced coma while you're on a ventilator. Uh, And that's what Jeff is referring to with when you're put on a coma in a ventilator. And then the coma essentially paralyzes you and you don't breathe for yourself. The ventilator ventilates you. The ventilator is a machine to trigger when your lungs are going to breathe. Now, what's the downside of a ventilator? Well, it's a closed system. And if you have coronavirus or SARS-CoV-2 in your lungs and you're exhaling that coronavirus, how much of that coronavirus is now going back into your lungs Mm. on the ventilator? It's a closed system. It's like you're breathing in and out of a paper bag, which anyone will know will cause the carbon dioxide to accumulate in your lungs. And on a ventilator, there are ways to do that. But generally speaking, you imagine that somebody on a ventilator could be exposed to a lot of coronavirus just because they're breathing it out and then it's coming back in. But you're right. The data I seen was pretty pretty disappointing, pretty sad that a lot of people who went onto ventilators did not come off. Only about one in five were able to come off of a ventilator. And the whole discussion around the beginning was, <clears throat> we have to make thousands more ventilators. Not a very effective therapy for humans. Do you want one person to die who needed a ventilator and couldn't get one? No. And I think that that's where the story went. We don't want anyone to die who would have needed one. I don't think they were the hope that we all expected them to be. And in fact, there were some people saying that maybe they were harming people or that the settings that were used may have been hard for certain people. So very tricky. Um, I I don't think the ventilators uh, saved as many lives as we hoped. Yeah, I think it's a very fair point. Like the one out of five person that survived off a ventilator, like every single life is precious. That's awesome. But I think just from an objective standpoint, a therapeutic that works 20% of the time is not, you wouldn't run a RCT and be like, oh, this is a great intervention. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's just, just, that's just numbers. And then from a policy perspective, I'm curious to get your thoughts on Sweden particularly. I think that country has definitely been a hotbed of observation where, you see the same stats. Um, some headlines say that this is an example of uh, a country well run, and you know their economy is not formally shut down, but you know they're managing kind of voluntary social isolation as they see fit, and the economy is kind of going, not as harsh of an economic social impact. And then you have other folks with the same data point where it's like, oh, Sweden compared to Finland, compared to Norway. Uh, much higher uh, fatality rates and infection rates. This is a poor decision for Sweden. Uh, what's your take on 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 the interpretation here? Yeah, that <clears throat> that's been very frustrating for me to see so many different news outlets painting the exact same data in different ways. And how does anyone make sense of that? I think this is the <clears throat> this is the this is the era we live in that. One news outlet is going to say one thing and another is going to say another. The WHO, for what it's worth, the World Health Organization, felt like Sweden was a success. And I think Sweden is a success story. And I think we're going to see that uh, very soon. In the next few weeks, I think we're going to be able to look back and see that Sweden was a clear success. Sweden's death rate per capita is higher than Finland and Denmark. But we also must remember that Sweden's death rate per capita is also much lower than France, Spain, Italy, and many European countries, it's on par with the UK or better than the UK, countries that did much more strict social distancing measures. Sweden's per capita death rate is also better than many states in the United States that did um, pretty severe lockdown orders. So 
it's all, this is like, everybody's just moving the goalposts around. It's just the same story over. It's just like the carnivore diet, right? It's just like animal-based diets. It's like, which epidemiology do you want to look at? Whose interpretation do you want to look at? Um, I think Sweden has some nuances that are important to highlight. Sweden is a long country. A lot of the Nor Nordic countries are very long north to south. So um, the majority of the population in Sweden is in Stockholm, which is where the majority of the cases were and where the majority of the deaths were. And it's, you know, you can compare it to Denmark, but to compare Sweden to Finland is a little differently. Uh, Sweet Finland is to the north and Finland doesn't have quite as much population density as, as Sweden. And so <clears throat> that's important to note. And then Norway is also uh, kind of north-south, a long country and not as populated as Sweden. So the other thing to notice about Sweden is that the majority of the deaths came from people in nursing homes. And in Sweden, there is a culture that a lot of elderly people end up in nursing homes, whereas in Finland and Norway or Denmark, that may not be as much of the case. So, you know, there's a lot of nuance about what these numbers mean. I think that if Sweden's social distancing policy had been, or lack or relaxed social distancing policy had been a failure, we would have had to have seen astronomically larger numbers of deaths, astronomically larger numbers of deaths per capita, astronomically larger numbers of infections. I think Sweden has herd immunity now and we will see it decline and we may see Finland's curve go longer. I would not be surprised if in the end, Finland and Sweden look about the same. Uh, we'll find out and that Sweden just compressed them into a shorter window of time, which goes back to the idea with flu and we can talk about that as well. But it's really too early to vilify Sweden and to damn them. Politically, people want to in countries where they've done a lockdown because if Sweden is right, it makes a lot of countries where they did a lockdown look really bad, right? Yeah. You can see there's everybody's got a dog in the fight right now. If if Sweden was right and their and their strategy, which was essentially they didn't close bars, they didn't close restaurants, young people were out and about. I think people are not, you know, sneezing on each other and they might be maintaining some social distancing but it's nothing like what we did in the US. Uh, if that's right, then there will be hell to pay in this country and other countries that locked everything down and had economic ramifications in a big way. So no one is really unbiased at this point. And I think that the the, the media outlets that, that want to look okay or that want to tell their readership that the lockdown was a good thing are going to paint Sweden as a failure when I think most people are looking at Sweden going, hey, this wasn't a complete catastrophe. Their death rate is a little bit higher, but it's on par with what we see in the U.S. It's better than a lot of U.S. states. It's better than a lot of countries in Europe. Like, what? How can you really? How can you damn that? There's all sorts of factors that can play in here, not the least of which is demographics, where the elderly people are, how many elderly people were dying versus other countries. There's a lot of nuance there that everyone is is you know dismissing just to make the headline because I think people are trying to defend their decision. I think that the what I just can't ignore is that. This would be a very scary time to be in political office. Polit politics would be a scary place in general. Uh, can you imagine being a politician right now? I think that they're just trying to keep their jobs and think, what do people want me to do? How do I not look bad? And that's, I think that's what the decisions are being made based upon, not real data. Yeah, I have a lot of empathy to our public servants and our public officials. I think they're, it's just a hard job and I have a lot of, I think... Empathy. If I wasn't sitting in that chair, it's like, hey, you have some people saying that you turn on the economy, you're going to kill millions of people. And other people saying like, hey, like this is not as strict. And you're like, where do you want to err? And I can see why people err on like, I don't want to be the person that just like killed half of America. 
and you're going to like lock down for an extra two, four, eight weeks because that 1% of an unemployment rate killing 40,000 people, that's over six years. And you'd rather take that heat versus, hey, over the next four weeks, we have some viral contagion that's like uncontrollable. And I think that's kind of the decisions. I'm sure, you know, back in March, April, when there was a lot less data, a lot less uh, observational data out there, that would that, that was probably the conversation that people were having. I wouldn't doubt it. I think politicians have a very hard job. Um, in order to get there, they have to be reasonably intelligent and savvy, at least politically. And it looks way worse if you have blood on your hands now as opposed to spread out over time. Yeah. I'm not saying that they made that decision. I'm just saying that would be a human thing to do. And it's, it's much harder to track deaths. Uh, due to depression, due to drug use, due to alcoholism, due to poverty, than it is to do than it is to track deaths due to a disease that's diagnosable in a hospital. So the blood that's on there will be blood spilled. You know, it's like that movie. There will be blood, and yeah. some of the blood is more visible than other blood. And I think it's reasonable to imagine that some politicians didn't want the darkest blood on their hands. Though the, there may be more blood shed in the long term, it will be more invisible blood. It will be blood that's much harder to attribute because poverty deaths, like I said, poverty, addiction, these are really hard. How do we, how do we know what caused this death? But all the numbers and all the data would suggest that it is connected with that. Yeah, well said. I'm actually curious then. So looks like you've synthesized a lot of how different countries have approached this problem. So being in America, it, it's like a very hard country to manage. We're a federal system. There's 50 governors, very different localities have different profiles than, so it's like really, yeah, I think as you said, like we're running like 50 plus nation states, really. Across the board, who would you give kudos to? Obviously, you're, you know, we're looking at Sweden as potentially one of the positive examples versus a negative example. Um, if you were a dictator of America, like everyone decided Paul could just run everything, what would you have done differently? Obviously, hindsight 2020. Right. But I'm curious, like, what would that kind of process rollout look like? Oh, man. And, and again, it's not fair because I can Monday morning quarterback it and I can use all the data that I've seen. But, you know, I'll tell you how I felt from the beginning. And, and my Twitter feed will, will corroborate this. And all of my posts on Instagram will corroborate this. From the very beginning, I've felt like this is more about our health as humans. And this kind of rolls, wraps it, you know, maybe ties it into a bow a little bit for us. I think that with any infectious disease, what I've learned being in medicine as a physician, um, in my previous career as a physician assistant in cardiology, is that, that the host, the terrain is very important and the health of the host is, is paramount and is important. And, and certainly some microbes, viral or bacterial origin, are more virulent than others, but terrain is always very critical and we can't ignore terrain. And so from the beginning, I thought, you know what, whatever virus is coming for us, let it come. Just let it come. And if we're healthy, we'll be fine. And if we're not, it's probably our time to, to go into the great barbecue in the sky. And I'm not, I don't mean that in an insensitive way, though it sounds flippant. Um, I think we're all going to die eventually. And in the podcast I just did with Kyle, Kyle Kingsbury, he had a very beautiful adage that he he relayed to me, which was when the storm comes on the plains, the buffalo stand shoulder to shoulder and they move into the storm. They don't run away from the storm. They know the fastest way through the storm is straight through it. And I think 
you know, now again, there it's, it's more nuanced than that. But my thinking from the very beginning was, if we are healthy people, we should move through this. And if this is really a virus that wipes us off the planet, then let's not let's not cower and and hide from it. We should move through this virus. And and from the beginning, I thought that the way we reacted was more fear based, and that was probably driven by the media. So for me the preparations should have begun years ago. And I think we, you and I have been beating the same drum. It's a drum. It's all about metabolic health. It's all about, and we've learned this over the course of coronavirus. This isn't even controversial anymore, though. When I tweeted this, you know, on, on March the 1st, I tweeted the, the best defense against coronavirus is to remain or to be in the 12% of the population who are metabolically healthy. And there was an article there that I mentioned. It's an article that I mentioned in my book, The Carnivore Code, about metabolic health and you know, a very small percentage of the U.S. population can really be considered to be optimally insulin sensitive and metabolically healthy. And you know, there's a little bit of irony in my comment by saying, "Hey, if you're the best, the best defense is to be in the 12% of the population." But it was meant to say, "Hey, let's wake up and realize that only 12% of the population is is metabolically healthy. 40% are obese, 70% are overweight." We've been in quarantine for the last eight to nine weeks. This is all fixable. <laughs> There's another article that I talked about in the podcast I did today with Asim Alhotra, a cardiologist from Britain uh, that I reviewed looking at kids with metabolic syndrome. And by removing processed sugar from the diet alone, by removing fructose from processed sugar, they were able to see improvements in all markers of insulin sensitivity within nine days. Nine days. We've been in quarantine for eight weeks like how many people could have significantly improved insulin resistance in the last eight weeks or nine weeks if the mainstream messaging had been less fear-based and more empowering saying, hey, put down the chips. Those are increasing your risk of coronavirus severity. Those are increasing your risk. But that's never going to happen. And that's never been the messaging. And that message has been rebelled against by people on Twitter. They would, they would vilify me and criticize me and say, what are you talking about? There's no diet that can protect you against coronavirus. And I thought, Absolutely, there are there are diets that can protect you against coronavirus. The health of an individual at a metabolic nutritional level is everything. And so from the beginning, I think I would have said this is a wake-up call for our nation. Now, in an emergency situation as a dictator or a king or a person in charge, you want to say, hey, look, there's a storm coming. It's on the horizon. We don't really have time to fix everybody's metabolic health in the next seven days. But you better believe that a part of whatever I did I think that a big part of the quarantine would have been quarantining people away from junk food. I think I would have said it is illegal to sell junk food in this country over the next eight weeks. You cannot sell soda. You cannot sell chips. You cannot sell pasta. You cannot sell processed grains and you cannot sell anything with refined sugar. What would that have? That would have been the quarantine that I would have done. I would have quarantined everyone from junk food and just from processed food, from ultra processed food. I wouldn't have quarantined everyone from plants. You can eat your plants if you want, you know, but eat your meat, eat the good animal foods and eat some reasonably raised plant foods. That's fine. People will know me. They know I'm interested in carnivore diets and animal-based diets. But what I would have really done was made junk food illegal because I think that would have saved more lives. Over the course of the eight weeks, I think that would have flattened the curve more than anything because metabolic health is such a huge arbiter. People don't believe me <clears throat> or they think this is hyperbole, I would encourage them to watch my other videos, my recent podcasts. There was just an article published in the journal Cell like two or three days ago showing that people with worse glycemic control, that is more glycemic variability, higher rates of gly glucose variability, these mean uh, amplitude glucose excursions postprandially, people with more of those, which is just a proxy for insulin resistance, have a much worse outcome with COVID-19. So 
that's how you make it better, right? And so, yes, I would have said, look, if New York turns into a huge inoculum, we don't want to overwhelm the healthcare system there. But I probably would have done a more heterogeneous approach to the states and said, if your state is not overwhelmed, then you don't need to do the social distancing in the same way. We know that elderly people are more susceptible. We know that diabetics are more susceptible. Let's get masks for those who are more susceptible. Let's consider masks, although I think we can talk about the the usefulness of masks and, and how they're being misinterpreted now. But I think we should have sheltered the weak and the elderly and had a wake-up call to them and done, done education processes for people with diabetes and said, hey, we're going to be we're going to have this virus around for eight weeks. We can fix your diabetes in eight weeks. If you give me a patient right now, I can improve their diabetes in eight weeks. I'm 99.9% sure if they're compliant. Eight weeks, I could improve their diabetes completely. You know, show me a drug that can do that. I could, imp- I could beat a drug in terms of A1C, fasting glucose, fasting insulin, area under the curve, glycemic variability. I can do that with them in a better way just by changing what they eat. So we know how to do this. And that would have been my focus, a little more nuanced, saying, okay, protect the old. Don't really worry about the young. Um, you know, enforce metabolic health, quarantine from junk foods, and let's move forward and let's protect people in healthcare because they seem to be exposed so radically because of the higher inoculum. And let's get the PPE where it needs to be. But I don't think it needs to be a, a, a countrywide lockdown. I think it could have been very heterogeneous based on where, they, where it was the worst. And if the healthcare system wasn't overwhelmed, then, you know, I don't think you need the lockdown in that position. And I think uh, most people are going to be exposed anyway. There seems to be some sort of a a misconception, unless I'm missing something, that somehow the lockdown or the quarantine is reducing the overall absolute number of people who are going to be exposed to coronavirus. And I just can't wrap my head around that. I think that when people wake up to the fact that eventually, if not already, most of us will be exposed, which means the same number of deaths, no matter how you do it, then the quarantine and lockdown starts to look a lot worse. It does starts to look a lot less efficacious. And all these arguments saying, we'll lose millions of lives if we open the economy too soon. It's like, what are you basing that on? Like, can you show me any virological data that continuing to keep the economy closed reduces the absolute number of people that will get exposed to coronavirus? Maybe if you had a vaccine, but good luck with that. You know, that's not happening for another 12 months. It's untenable. Yeah, I mean, if it's if it's area under the curve, right? These are intervals. Yeah. It's the same amount of area, same amount exactly. of numbers. It's just like how much time is there? And it's like, yes, unless there's like a magic vaccine or therapeutic that happens, which like there's an argument, maybe, you know, the entire world is focusing on therapeutics. Maybe we get there faster. We're buying time for that. But I think that would be a good conversation and policy debate to have. We are going to aim for a vaccine or a therapeutic and we're going to do this for x months and that is the goal i think right now it's just like what are we quarantining for well what is it what is the stop point what is a go no go decision i think there's not a lot of clarity from a policy and a communication perspective and that's i think a little bit troublesome from a population level like okay what are we sacrificing for right because there's clearly sacrifice being done right now um but i'm glad i asked the dictator question and you had an actual good dictatorial mandate, right? Because <laughs> I think when a lot of people get asked that question, I think they kind of have a, a wishy-washy answer, which is, um, uh, I don't want to do anything too drastic, but I think uh, the diet component is is bold. And I think just to maybe unpack that a little bit more, some of the data that I've come across, I mean, you literally see 10x fatality rates if you are diabetic compared to metabolically healthy, right? And I think, again, not a causative study, uh, although there's reasonable mechanisms of actions of why 
you know, metabolic issues could be causative. Uh, No one's studied that formally, but just in terms of the fatality rates, it's as much of a smoking gun associational data set as you can kind of get in terms of the, the hazard rate or the fatality rate from a lot of the core chronic conditions that we as a site already face. Oh, absolutely. And we see that with every disease. I mean, when you see diabetes, insulin resistance, metabolic dysfunction associated with worsening of every single infectious disease, it makes a pretty good case here. There's something going on. You know, it's like, well, I think this is probably mechanistically viable. And, and you can do their interventional studies that show that. And like you said, there's plenty of mechanistic studies showing that the innate immune system uh, is, is very tightly regulated by insulin signaling at the level of T cells and B cells, and especially at the level of the innate cells, the, uh, the, the dendritic cells, the macrophages, the natural killer cells, insulin signaling is necessary for proper function. And as we know, when you become insulin resistant, it's not just your pancreas, it's not just your liver, though it can be concentrated in some areas, your white blood cells are also insulin resistant. And that's a problem. And that's exactly what we see in diabetes. So there's plenty of mechanistic data there. I think it's very, very clear. And I would be happy to be a good dictator. I would be on that throne with my scepter going, junk food, you're gone. And, and all the, you know, all the assassins would try and come get me because I mean, this is this is kind of the I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I think that it's interesting to think outside of the box here. Why haven't we heard that message? And you know, why haven't we heard the message about alcohol? I mean, alcohol sales are up, junk food sales are up. Um, cereal sales are up. All the processed food sales are up right now. I haven't watched any TV, but I would ask people to take a look at the commercials that are on TV. Who's advertising to you during the fear-mongering news? Is it pharmaceutical sales? Is it junk food manufacturers? I bet it is. I bet that car manufacturers are not really uh, paying for commercials right now. People are like, I'm losing jobs. I'm not really going to spend my money on a new car, but I might just spend my money on some comfort food, quote unquote, because I'm so anxious or I'm so depressed when the comfort food is a real problem in the beginning. What we have is a metabolic syndrome pandemic. That's the real pandemic. And that's almost passe to say now, but I think it's totally true that the real pandemic is metabolic dysfunction. And coronavirus is just exposing that in our population, which is a very... It's a very uh, it's a very unpleasant thing for most people to look at, but where's it coming from? At the basic level, it's coming from ultra processed food, and who's paying for that? Well, multi billion dollar agribusiness companies that have a lot of vested interests, and now we're talking, you know, Bayer, Monsanto, Cargo, Nestle, Kellogg's. Like those guys do not want you to eat whole foods. I mean, they want you to eat processed food. So here you go, eat some comfort food. In, in terms of drasticness, right? Like I think you hear on face value, oh, I'm going to ban refined carbohydrate or junk food, quote unquote. And it sounds pretty authoritarian, but I think equally, it's like, hey, we're telling people to like not run their businesses and go bankrupt, right? Like uh, like you see the projections on the economic front. I mean, Gold's Gym, bankrupt. J. Crew bankrupt. I just saw on the news that Airbnb laid off 25% of their workers, and I think that's just a start, right? And I think it's the the, the economic social distancing or, or shelter in place rules are just as drastic, right? So then it's like, okay, if we're going to make drastic action, 
what are the outcomes that might be better? And I think from a nutrition perspective, hey, it's actually not a bad idea. It's like, okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to reduce your freedom. We've already kind of accepted that, right? Like we've accepted some limitation of freedom at this point. Uh, maybe the nutrition freedom is a, is a good one to look at. So I'm just wondering what will people take away from this, right? And it sounds like the argument that you're presenting I think the science is very sound there, but I'm not sure that our society, our culture is going to take nutrition and metabolic health as a takeaway message here, unfortunately. I haven't heard it in the news once. I don't watch the news a whole lot, but I haven't had any single person on Twitter or Instagram send me a photo or a news story where it says, you know, I saw, I posted one thing on my Instagram. There was one doc in the ICU who went on Fox News and he said, I've got 15 patients in my ICU with coronavirus and 14 of them are diabetic and one of them is 95 years old and we don't know if he has diabetes. And I thought, holy moly, that is crazy. And of course people were like, oh, you're supporting Fox News. And I thought, just stop. Like, (laughs) I I have no political affiliation in this. I just saw it. But I have not seen that as like the main, so that should be the cover story on every newspaper. Diabetes, insulin resistance, 10x your risk of coronavirus. Wake up. You know, wake up, people. Take, put the Cheetos down. I can't even tell you. You know, yesterday I was doing a podcast with someone and I was telling the person I was on the podcast with, I'm watching a guy walk into my building with a pizza and a six pack of Coke. And you're damn right I'm judging him. I'm saying, you have like, nobody's going to say, hey, man, like, it's coronavirus. Why are you eating that? But that's exactly what needs to be said. There needs to be some junk food reality talk here because that's that's what it's going to take. And unfortunately, that's just never going to happen or I'm not optimistic that's going to happen because of the interests behind the scenes driving it. I think if the, I think if, I just don't think it's ever going to be sexy and it's, it's never going to be good uh, press for the media. It's not fear inspiring. It's empowering. It's the reverse of fear. If you told people, hey, most people who are metabolically healthy are going to get through this just fine, they'd be like, oh okay, I'm just going to go exercise. And why are you telling me I can't go outside and exercise? Like, that's stupid. And why aren't you letting me go to a gym? Like, I'm trying to get healthy here. Somebody, you know, my friend Mike Mutzel posted something on his Instagram that said that studies have shown, I need, I need to pull the study. I didn't actually show the study. But there was a study that he posted saying that previous research has shown that for every week or month of quarantine, like a certain percentage of people uh, get more metabolic dysfunction. <clears throat> that insulin resistance gets worse, that diabetes is increasing when we have quarantine. I thought, oh, isn't that the nail in the coffin? And I need to pull that study and start talking about it. But I, I trust Mike, and I think he's totally right, that if previous studies have shown that when you do what we're doing to people now, you are worsening their metabolic health. And I, I posted about this on Twitter and took flack for it. And I mean, there's just so many haters out there right now. I said, isn't it possible that social distancing could be hurting the metabolic health and the immunologic competence of the population, making them more susceptible to coronavirus. And people just lost their mind. That's irresponsible of a physician to suggest that. And now I just want to be like, I told you so. Now the vitamin D data came out. There's some, you know, a small study, but there's some really distinct data showing that um, those with higher vitamin D levels are much better with coronavirus. Well, you know, what's the best way to get vitamin D? It's just to go in the sun. How much of the population is going to take a vitamin D supplement? And do we know if that's going to work the same way as being in the sun? Like you can't deny the best way to get vitamin D is to be outside. And we're being told to shelter at home. They're closing parks. You can't even go outside. They close all the beaches in San Diego. The whole thing is completely 
uh, backwards. It doesn't make any sense to me. And it's just, what are they doing? No one is thinking about metabolic health. They're just thinking about don't touch anyone else, which doesn't make any sense to me for all the reasons we talked about earlier. The virus is going to be around. It's going to spread no matter what we do. We have to face it head on. Why are we still running from it? And we need to know that when we're going to face it head on, we need to face it head on with the most healthy physiology that we can. How do we achieve that? Eat real food, put down the Coke, put down the pizza, put down the Cheetos, go outside in the sun and walk a little bit. I think we'd all yeah, do just around. Yeah. yeah, I think it's actually so pretty, yeah, it's pretty interesting, especially with the initial hypothesis towards the beginning of the conversation around not having a second wave, but the study that Mike mentioned, if we're actually increasing metabolic issues, yeah. are we weakening the population for there will be a likely second wave because we just deranged the metabolism of people even more? I think that's an interesting counterpoint because we kind of, quote unquote, made it worse by all of that. I, 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 I want to throw another question at you before you respond to that, which is some of the haters or some of the devil's advocates are saying that, hey, a lot of the data is associational and epidemiological. And back in the carnivore conversation, a lot of the attacks against carnivore were epidemiological. Sometimes epidemiology is great when it's in our favor. Sometimes it's not when it's not in our favor. How do you respond to that? <clears throat> this is so frustrating. People said the same thing about my book, which is about the carnivore diet. It's called the carnivore code. They said <clears throat> he criticizes epidemiology and then he uses it when it's in his favor, which I did not do in the book. Every time in the book that I was talking about an epidemiology study, I said, this is an epidemiology study. And just like you and I have very clear, very clearly said in this podcast, when we are talking about epidemiology, we will admit that it's epidemiology, admit the limitations, and talk about what it means. But when epidemiology is all you have to go on, what else are you going to do? The, my criticisms or my pushback with a carnivore diet or so many of the criticisms of eating meat are epidemiological. But when you look at the real interventional studies, you see that meat is not harmful for humans at all. When we have interventional studies, they trump epidemiology hands down. The problem is we just don't have interventional studies with coronavirus. We don't have any of those right now. Epidemiology is all we have. It's all we have. And as you and I have said with regard to diabetes and insulin resistance, the data is so overwhelming. It's so overwhelming. And this gets into the nuance, but let's think about it, right? Okay, what is epidemiology? Epidemiology can tell us a correlation. It can't tell us causation. So from the correlation, we can generate a hypothesis which we can test. And we can do the same thing with meat and cancer or meat and cardiovascular disease or meat and inflammation. And with, in the latter cases, meat and cancer, meat and inflammation, meat and heart disease, interventional studies don't show the same thing that the epidemiology might suggest in some cases. And the epidemiology is not consistent. So what you have with epidemiology with regard to meat and cancer, meat and inflammation, and meat and heart disease is very conflicting epidemiology across different countries. And the interventional studies don't support it. With coronavirus, all the epidemiology points in exactly the same direction. There are no epidemiology studies that say that diabetes is not connected with this. There are multiple studies now across thousands of patients showing exactly the same thing. But the same cannot be true, cannot be said for the epidemiology studies associating meat with negative outcomes or associating vegetables with better outcomes. There's a lot of conflicting data when you move across Western and Eastern cultures. And people can hear this on the first podcast that you and I did about the carnivore diet. So that's, that's the major piece is that you have to look at the entirety of the epidemiology. There's no such thing in my mind as cherry picking interventional studies. There's no such thing. 
an interventional study stands on its own. If it's a good, if it's well done and it's, and it's big enough, this is, if the sample size is big enough and it's powered, you know, to reject the null hypothesis, then an interventional study stands on its own. You can't cherry pick an interventional study, but you can certainly cherry pick epidemiology. So when you're talking about epidemiology, you really need to look at the entirety of the epidemiology. Well, the entirety of the epidemiology with coronavirus is very, very consistent. There's a much higher risk with comorbid conditions. We see it in every single freaking study. And then you look at the mechanisms, those are there. And then you look at diabetes and every single other infectious illness, flu, uh, mucormycosis, diabetes is always a higher risk. It just, it absolutely is an open and shut case because of the volume of data. But the same is not the case with with carnivore diet and animal-based diets. It's much more varied. There are interventional studies which clearly show that meat is not harmful for humans. It's not inflammatory. It doesn't cause cancer. This is all just crazy. But it's just apples and oranges in terms of the way we're looking at the data, the quality of the data, and the enormity of the data uh, across the whole spectrum of the research. So it's just, you know, people always want to say that. And it's like, look, we're just arguing syntax now. I, I hadn't actually seen that, but I'm, I'm flabbergasted. I'm flabbergasted to hear that anyone is denying the epidemiology with coronavirus right now saying, oh, that's not, it's just correlation. What? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's well, I think you articulate that very, very well. I think it's well stated. I think end of the day, I, I what I've found is that you're very intellectually honest. I, I, I don't, super care either way right it's just like let's just do what's actually good for ourselves and for the people around us like you know like it's not like you make a crazy amount of more money if you sell more meat or less meat it's just like the meat industry is going to be there it's like that's where it's just like silly to me that there's like really no point to fuck around with with the science there like let's just understand and search for the truth yeah i think that the critics would say oh he's gonna he's gonna sell more books if he's right and it's like look people are smart they can decide for themselves i don't think it's going to affect my book sales a whole lot i mean certainly if the ideas i put forth are reasonable and sound i might sell some books which is great because maybe people will read my ideas and and see that they've been misled by other ideas or think outside of the box certainly everything i'm going to say all the time is not going to be right nobody has no matter how intelligent they are, but I think that it's worth sharing ideas and we shouldn't fear being wrong. And um, I try to be honest and not dogmatic. And, um, you know, I'm writing a cookbook now, which is going to be a little bit more uh, open-ended and I'm going to have some plants in there and talk about the least toxic plants. So I'm certainly not dogmatic about carnivore diets, but- Interesting. (laughs) But I really do believe, yeah, I really do believe that animal foods are the best foods on the planet for humans. And that if you want to be nutrient rich in your life, if you want to have nutrients- you should obtain those from animal foods. And those are clearly your superior sources to plant foods. I think animal foods have been incorrectly vilified for decades based on misleading epidemiology and actually cherry-picked epidemiology. And I think that if you look at the interventional studies, animal foods are clearly better sources of all the nutrients that we know are crucial for cardiac health and immune health. And it's just not even questionable in my opinion. And beyond that, I think that there are toxins in plants and not everybody reacts well to all plants. Do I think everyone needs to eat a carnivore diet? Absolutely not. But just even those points that I suggested are pretty radical to to say, hey, broccoli is probably not good for every human on the planet. You know, Rhonda Patrick and I need to have a battle royale. And I just don't think broccoli is a good thing. I don't think leafy greens are a good thing. And people can read all about that in my book, The Carnivore Code. But you know, I, I, I do try to be open-minded. And if I'm wrong about something, I, I believe that I will admit it. And, and I do, I do want to try and be, you know, uh, honest about what I, what I see uh, substantiated and what I see not substantiated in my previous ideas. 
and move forward with that. And so the cookbook, yeah, is going to be, I just, I think a lot of people are not going to be able to do a full carnivore diet, nor do they need to. And so I wanted to develop some ideas around what are the least toxic plant foods? That's probably one of the biggest questions I get. If I'm going to eat plants, is there a plant toxicity spectrum? And I believe there absolutely is. Every diet tries to create, not every diet, but most diets try to create a plant toxicity spectrum. Paleo, AIP, autoimmune paleo, Atkins, Bulletproof, they're all creating toxicity spectrums for foods. And I'm going to draw that spectrum a little differently. And that's what makes a carnivore diet unique. And I do want people to know that there probably are some foods that are less likely to be toxic, but it's going to be very individual within the plant kingdom, bringing it full circle. If you really want to talk about how to improve your metabolic health, number one, eliminate all ultra processed foods, all vegetable oils, all processed sugars. And then number two, make sure you're getting nutrients. You really cannot be metabolically healthy or have a healthy immune system if you're zinc deficient. Well, good luck getting any bioavailable zinc from plant foods, you know, and the list goes on and on, whether it's B12, B6, riboflavin, thiamine, uh, minerals, selenium. What about peptides that are unique to animal foods? You just can't get these things. K2, there's a whole chapter in my book about the unique nutrients in animal foods that really don't even occur in plant foods. So I really strongly believe in that. That's perhaps the take home for people and how this all ties together with my other um, interests and thoughts and uh, writings and, and musings and research is that if you really want to be a healthy human, animal foods are an indispensable part of your diet uh, because of these unique nutrients. And if you really want to be strong in the storm and you want to be one of those buffalo that can stand shoulder to shoulder and go straight into the storm, you better be strong and you better have nutrients. And I'll let people decide where they want to get those from. But uh, I think that you know the best case to get those, the best place to get those is animal foods for sure. So that's that's what we do. You know, if we want to be strong against coronavirus or any immune infection, we have to be metabolically healthy. We have to be nutritionally healthy and everyone can decide what that looks like for them. But I will make the case in my book that it's including a lot of animal foods. And if that is me saying that a carnivore diet will will cure coronavirus, then so be it. Even though that's not what I'm saying, I do think that any reasonable listener will hear that that metabolic health and nutritional adequacy is, is paramount. And um, I believe you have to include animal foods to do that, especially organ meats. Well stated, right? I think it's like A leads to B, B leads to C. Yeah. I don't think you necessarily need to say A leads directly to C, right? Like I don't think transitive property necessarily, like we need to make that claim per se. But look, like there's clearly some correlations that make a lot of sense. And on the margin, it's not going to, it's like neutral. At, at the worst case, it's neutral. Say like it doesn't even help on the infectious disease side. It's at worst neutral. Yeah. So it seems like a very easy trade-off from a from a improving your lifestyle and nutrition perspective. Yeah. And I also want to make it clear that I do not believe that carbohydrates lead to insulin resistance in humans uh, per se, and that the, the source of the carbohydrate is critical. I'm not dogmatic about ketogenic diets. I think a ketogenic low-carb diet can be very helpful for people, but I definitely think as illustrated by the uh, paper from Robert Lustig that I talked about in my podcast today and that I've posted about on Twitter, that you can replace fructose, you can replace fructose and sugar-sweetened beverages with equal amounts of carbohydrates and equal amounts of calories and see improvements in insulin sensitivity. Carbohydrates do not in and of themselves uh, lead to insulin resistance. I do not believe that's the case. Um, I think that the source of the carbohydrate is very important and there's some nuance there. So even though a classical carnivore diet wouldn't have carbohydrates, I don't think that everyone needs to do it that way. And I think there are ways to include carbohydrates in a carnivore-ish diet that I talk about in my book and that I'll talk about in the cookbook that may make it you know, more val- valuable or viable for some people. Yeah, I agree with that, especially depending on your energetic demands, right? Mm-hmm. Like I think if you're 
depleting your glycogen, you can have a little bit more leeway with carbohydrate intake. I think that just makes sense from an energetics perspective or a homeostasis perspective. Yeah. Um, I want to get kind of a last couple of thoughts here, which is kind of the free speech and almost like the like the visceral reaction here. I mean, I, I think obviously being one of the more prominent carnivores, you're kind of used to being on the barbecue under the fire, if you will. Um, what is it like being in your shoes now where I just saw that there was a tip with a doctor that reported you to the, the California board for, for MDs. What's it like in terms of keeping that voice out there, uh, fostering discussion around data and evidence, but getting a lot of haters and people trying to like take you down or try to get you banned. What do you, how do you, how do you, how are you handling it? Or how are you, how are you digesting all of this? In the beginning, it was stressful. And then I had some good friends give me some great advice that the haters just mean you're doing the good thing. You know, I, I see it as positive thing now. I don't even see them anymore, to tell you the truth. I think I've moved beyond it. It, it happened somewhere during this whole coronavirus thing. At the beginning, I was very stressed about it. And, you know, when that doctor on Twitter reported me to the Medical Board of California for suggesting that herd immunity was a reasonable thing to consider. And then he encouraged his followers to report me to the medical board. I thought that was so underhanded. And he happened to be a vegan physician on Twitter who I had disagreed with previously. So it just it just reeked of cheap shots uh, to me. It's like, oh, what a, what, a, what a jerk move. What a weak, cowardly move. And to be fair, so people know the end of the story, I never heard from the medical board. I still have my California medical license. And they would never be able to take it away from me for suggesting something that is now being discussed by political regimes throughout the world and probably has already happened. Um, so it was absurd from the very beginning and really just a posturing move. Um, it certainly generated a lot of interest. And I think it was positive because it exposed exactly what you're talking about. The idea there's a lot of tribalism right now and people are not cooperating and they're not thinking outside of the box and they just want to hold tight to their identity and anything that challenges their identity is going to challenge their security as a human, and that's going to make them very angry, and they appear to react very poorly when that happens. So it's very sad to me, but um, I'm sure you get haters and you get detractors too, but at this point, I've just moved past it, and, and it took a while. Believe me, it was a gauntlet, and it was like walking over coals, um, you know, writing the book and, and talking about the carnivore diet, and now with coronavirus, I just, I've been foist back into the fire immediately. I just... I guess I just don't think the same way as other people. And throughout the whole coronavirus conversation, I was thinking there's something wrong with this. I don't agree with this. And again, I'm super controversial, whether it's carnivore diet or coronavirus. Like I don't, I'm not thinking about it the same way that other people are. And I could be wrong, but I, I had to share my ideas. And I, I thought about it a whole lot. And I kept wrestling with this idea. Like, am I wrong? How do I think about this so much differently? But as it looks now, I think that, um, Many of the questions that that I was hoping to ask are are being answered, and and many of the concerns and suspicions that I had in the beginning seem to be corroborated to some extent, and um, that feels pretty good. And I think at this point I've just moved past it. I don't even hear the I don't even hear the haters anymore. At some point, the noise becomes deafening, so deafening that you just don't even hear it, and you're like, oh well, I don't even care. I don't engage with them anymore. 
I think it's like don't give them free real estate in yeah. your brain. Like you're getting free real estate in their brain. I, I'm like, who's winning, right? So like, yeah. yeah, just move forward and do our things. I think that's 100% the way to approach it. And it sounds like you're handling it super well. I'm glad that the BS report didn't go anywhere because it, it's 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 petty. Like, it, and I think that's where like I feel very comfortable searching for truth. Like, if your arguments are in te- intellectually honest, then that's a fine debate and discussion and and bored to talk towards and say like, hey, prove me wrong. I am okay dying on this stand on this cross because I feel very good about my reasoning and logic. And that's like right. the, I think the, really the only way to live. Um, believe what you say and evolve your beliefs given new information. Yeah. and you, But you have to believe, you have to say what you believe, you know, and I'm okay with that. I'm fine. I'm fine, you know, being wrong. I'm not yep, afraid to be wrong. And that's like the, but literally the most American way to live, right? Like you say what you believe. That's like almost like the the axiom of being an American. I would, yeah. There's like one way to put it. Um, so it sounds like you have a couple of cool projects coming out. So you, there's like, I, I know there's like the big book launch. Sounds like it's doing super well, hitting some best-selling lists. Uh, and then you have a cookbook coming up. I mean, 2020, obviously plans are blown out, but what are you excited for in, in the works where do people keep updated? Again, I think your podcast uh, has been a very useful resource to get some of the latest snapshot updates on the evolving coronavirus situation. Oh, thank um, you. What's, what's going on in, in, in the Saladino world right now? So my, like there's a move going on too. Yeah. So a lot, lot yeah. going on. All kinds of things going on. So my podcast is Fundamental Health. Uh, it's on my YouTube channel if you want to check that out. My book is The Carnivore Code. Um, and you can find it at The Carnivore codebook.com. The exciting news with the book is is that it's a bestseller uh, on Amazon and that it got bought by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, which is a big five publisher in New York City. And it's always going to be for sale, but come August, it'll be officially published by a big five publisher in New York City. And then hopefully we'll make the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal of one of the official lists, because as many people will know, when you self-publish, it's very hard to make a list. Um, So I'm hoping to continue the success of the book and just have it reach more people. I, I really don't um, want that to be the priority. I just want more people to, to access it. So you can find it at thecarnivorecodebook.com on Amazon now. And then in August, it'll be everywhere. It'll be at Barnes and Noble and Target and Walmart, I hope, and in the airports. And, and again, I think it'll reach a lot of people and challenge a lot of ideas with regard to animal-based diets and how we've been led astray. I'm at CarnivoreMD at all the social media handles you, you can find me there and see what I'm doing. I do have a cookbook coming out in the fall also with Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, which is going to be super exciting. And that's going to be probably called the Carnivore Code Diet or the Carnivore Code Cookbook. And we'll have lots of recipes uh, that are going to be carnivore-ish. So including the least toxic plant foods, people can sort of keep an eye out for that one. I'm also moving to Texas in a couple of weeks. I'm moving to Austin because I've got some business stuff happening that's uh, exciting to talk about in the near future. Well, Thanks so much, Paul, for taking the time here. Stay safe. We'll talk again through the other side. Let's see how the hypotheses play out. I know. Again, I think uh, if you're right, it's definitely better for the world, right? I mean, like we're past and through it. But hey, I think I think both you and I are willing to say, hey, maybe we're wrong on this. But uh, you know, well, then we'll live and learn and, and evolve our thinking there. But we're again, gonna thanks for taking the time. Yeah, my pleasure. We're going to find out either way. And I think like you said earlier in the podcast, we can't keep doing what we're doing now. So I think that now's the time. And that means the call to be 
metabolically healthy and nutritionally healthy is more important than others. So ever than ever. So I hope people will will heed that. And I hope the media will not ignore that. But you and I are hopefully a part of making sure that people people don't ignore this. All right, we'll leave it at that. Be safe. Thanks so much. Thanks, man. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the HVMN podcast. If you're interested to learn more about HVMN and our offerings, visit hvmn.com slash pod. Please remember to subscribe. And if you're watching this on YouTube, please give this video a like and remember to hit that bell to get notified whenever we post. We also have a dedicated Discord server, which you can join by first taking a short survey and then I'll personally send you an invite to join the community there. The link to that survey will be in the description along with any other relevant links. And we'll see you all next week.